0: Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey guys, it's Scott Groves, On The Edge Podcast. This is an episode of Scott's Thoughts, just a solo cast here by myself talking about some fun stuff. I'm actually really excited because we're coming to you from our new podcast studio. Uh, Huge kudos to Chris, who's uh, my version of Jamie, for building out a really gorgeous uh, studio within about three days uh, a lot of cool stuff on the wall kind of new camera equipment new desk new setup uh, we're gonna keep our old podcast studio uh, but we're coming from a super secret undisclosed location and uh, yeah I'm really excited because we've got a little bit less audio interference we started from a blank slate like I'm I'm just super excited and uh, very thankful for Chris for coming all the way up here where we're uh, filming from and building out a whole new podcast studio in like 72 hours so uh, let's get started I've got a fair amount to complain about tonight so let's start with a fun Story. Uh, For those of you that know me personally or uh, were friends on Facebook, you know I'm kind of a uh, Guns N' Roses super fan. And it's weird to call myself a super fan because I have a horrible. Horrible memory. So, at least 50% of the time, I can't even recall the names of the five original band members, um, you know, as they came up on the Sunset Strip and filmed or filmed, uh, recorded Appetite for Destruction. So, it's weird to call yourself a super fan when sometimes you can't remember the fifth band member. But I do know that the sixth band member, the sixth band member, uh, or affectionately called the sixth band member of Guns N' Roses in those early days was this guy named Mark Cantor. And uh, Mark Cantor's parents, I believe, owned like a, a small record shop in Delhi over off of Sunset. He was Slash's best friend. And from the very, very, very early days, like Slash's very first performance at Fairfax High, uh, Mark Cantor was there taking pictures. So as Slash's best friend, and then kind of the best friend of the band, he had a front row seat for the development and formation of Guns N' Roses. He was there for all the first shows. He got to film, have some film, and uh, take pictures of basically their, their journey into making Appetite for Destruction which is super super cool so Mark Cantor is friends with this guy named Jason Porath and Jason Porath just released uh, the first couple episodes of what's called 51st Gigs so if you're a rock and roll fan if you like kind of that behind the music vibe if you're a Guns and Roses fan for sure you've got to jump on Patreon you got to pay the 5 bucks I think there's like a 5 buck level a 15 buck level a 25 buck level something like that pay at least the 5 bucks so you can get access to this podcast because it's not going to be released for free um, because Mark Cantor and Jason Porath had to put a lot of time and energy and money into this. And I actually reached out unsolicited to Jason Porath, didn't know who he was, didn't have any friends in common, but reached out, just told him what a huge fan I was, that I saw GNR in LA two weeks ago. And then I saw him in Vegas last week with my five-year-old that I'm a huge fan of what he's doing, you know, paid kind of the premium subscription on Patreon for 25 bucks a month. And uh, he responded and super cool guy. So we're trying to work out having him on the podcast. Uh, He's going to talk about season two because they've actually wrapped up season one it's getting released weekly I think we're on episode three with some bonus material very 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 cool if you were a fan of that VH1 television show behind the music where you're like oh I didn't know that about that band or all of a sudden the story of 10,000 maniacs or Alice in Chains or Motley Crue is super interesting interesting If you like that kind of genre, you don't even have to be a Guns N' Roses fan to really get into this podcast because they talk about the early days and they talk about kind of the development of the Sunset Strip from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and how it kind of came to be what it is today as this epicenter for entertainment. So I can't say enough good things about the podcast. Uh, If you're a music fan, a rock fan, a Guns N' Roses fan, for sure, pay the five bucks, get the podcast. Hopefully we'll be talking to Jason Porath here in the next couple of weeks and uh, we'll go from there. So that's Scott's first thought. Uh, And now we're going to go into some complaining and some concerns. And for those of you that are following along at home, uh, tonight I'm smoking a uh, Liga Pravada T52. It's one of my go-to daily smokes. I love it. And I'm not drinking. Uh, I haven't drank in about a month and a half. Uh, I dropped 22 pounds this year. About the last 12 of that pounds, I dropped in the last month and a half because I had a jujitsu tournament. Um, uh, again, for those of you that know me, I've gotten pretty into jujitsu over COVID. Paid for a bunch of private lessons when all the gym shut down, and I really, really enjoying it. So, entered my first tournament. Went all the way to Vegas for what's called a Naga tournament, North American. Grapplers Association I think uh, is the name of the association. Drove all the way up to Vegas uh, did a tournament in the no-gi division of old men so this is all the guys over 40s. I don't have to fight all the killers. Uh, no-gi is where it's kind of more akin to wrestling uh, no big like kimono or gi as they call it and uh, and then I also did the gi tournament where you wear the kind of traditional robe kind of looks like judo. Uh, so the no-gi I won my division. It was pretty cool. Uh got to beat up on some people and uh, won and and the uh, just won the 40 year old over division, and then uh, unfortunately lost my first match in the Ghee division. Kind of a different type of style and sport, and especially in competition, it's much different than practice. So lost that, but hopefully I'll be back to get them in the near future. And so anyway, long story longer. Um, I haven't been drinking because I've been on a pretty strict diet of uh, two meals a day, maybe some type of protein shake with a bunch of oh just horrible stuff in it, kale and celery and stuff that your body basically burns as many ca- calories processing as the Food provides in nutrients, so it just it tastes like shit, but it fills you up and it helps you on the uh, nutritional front. Uh, so I'm just drinking water, and once in a while I have a bubbly water. Once every four or five days I'll have a diet soda because I love Diet Pepsi and Diet Dr Pepper. Uh, but yeah, been pretty healthy living for me, uh, and thank God cigars have no calories, so these have been my uh, my one respite. In, uh, in this new dietary uh, methodology that I'm taking on to lose weight. And I wanted to lose another 10 pounds. So I got under, I think I was like 222 at my fattest. Uh, was probably 212 about a month and a half, two months ago, down to 200. I'd really like to get down to 190 because in jujitsu or most combat sports, uh, they usually uh, classify you by age and then skill level, but then also by weight. So I would love to be fighting guys that are 10 pounds um, skinnier than me. So uh, this first story we're gonna talk about uh, well, first political story. We talked about Guns and Roses, but that wasn't really a story. That was just me being a fanboy. Uh, the first story we're going to talk about is this Pineapple Express. And, you know, I was hesitant to talk about this, but before the news of Afghanistan, you know, totally fades away from the memory and it's no longer in the United States psyche, um, I thought it was important to talk about this. And for those of you that haven't heard, it's, it's a fascinating story. I would read about it uh, a couple ex-Navy SEALs, ex-Special Forces Operators, some of them whose name you might know, Tim Kennedy, who's this badass in Texas who owns a jiu-jitsu gym, still shoots like every other day. He's probably in better shape now than he was when he was in the SEAL teams. He's an ex-Navy SEAL. He's kind of a very boisterous, outspoken kind of like a social media influencer who also happened to be a Navy SEAL previously and a professional UFC fighter. Um, Him and a bunch of other ex-Special Forces operators uh, who are no longer in the military banded together, created this kind of like straight out of the movies Pineapple Express Special Forces team Went to Afghanistan when the shit was hitting the fan, and they couldn't get people into the airport. And they basically went outside of the wire, so outside of the safety of the area of the airport, outside of the safety of the established military U.S. military zone. And they went into Kabul and they rescued people. Um, they got you know uh, whether it was aid workers or U.S. citizens or translators or people who were stuck in the city behind Taliban Taliban lines or Taliban checkpoints. Uh, they went in, they got them, they got into the airport to safety. Um, now, I, I'm really torn on this because defend, d- depending on how you look at this, there's kind of two ways to look at it. And, and one day they'll make the movie and they'll write the book and we'll get all the facts. For now, the facts are a little sketchy. Like, you know, were they there with the consent and support of uh, Biden and the gen- generals and kind of the military apparatus and basically the military said hey you guys know what to do you're here voluntarily there's no restrictions technically on going into afghanistan do what you want or were they there kind of as a rogue element um it's it's very kind of gray area and and the the way that i'm kind of looking at this is twofold is like if these were ex special forces operators which they were and they selfish selfishly selfishly volunteered um I think that's amazing. Uh, kudos to them. I think we need. I think we need more Americans to step up and support their fellow man and support you know foreign countries that are in need. Um, it's it's very noble, and I don't want to take away from anybody. Especially since when I was in the military, I never served in a combat zone. I never got shot at or never had to shoot my weapon in anger or trying to kill somebody. I want to show the utmost respect for anybody that put their life at risk to save other people. Um, and then funny story, uh, it's Pineapple Express because I guess they were like texting the symbol of a pineapple so that as the people were either coming through the the gutters and the shit filled, oh, disgusting, um, trying to get into the base or they had to get to the base, uh, they had like a screenshot on their phone of a pineapple, which is kind of funny because like an upside down pineapple means you're a swinger. So I think the pineapple symbol was kind of funny, kind of tongue in cheek. Anyway, I digress. Um, so ton of respect to them and i also want to think of well if this was a rogue military unit um that kind of sets a scary precedent right um because if we get to the point where ex military which there are millions of ex military people in the united states if ex military the the population at large um, the people that are the most well armed in america If they get to a point where they don't trust the government to do the right thing and trust the military to carry out military operations as they see fit, and you start getting rogue elements that insert themselves into areas of conflict, either with the support, with the implicit or implied or wink, wink, nod, nod support of the military or against the wishes of the military, I think this could be a really scary precedent And, you know, there's a lot of people that make a lot of money um, saying very hyperbolic things and talking about how the U.S. is closer to a civil war than we've ever been. And, And, you know, one side will say, we need more gun control to make it safer. And the other side will say, take my guns over my dead body because this is how, well, historically accurate, this is how, you know, the Cambodian genocide, the Armenian genocide, the Jewish genocide, you know, this is how it happened. The government takes away all their guns and then, a year to 20 years later, executes a large swath of people. So I I understand both sides of the argument. Uh, Obviously, I'm more of a Second Amendment absolutionist. I believe everybody should be able to own a gun. But man, when you start talking about the people, the people, or the ex-military no longer having faith in the military and starting to run their own military operations, I, I think we should look at this, even if you're super proud of what these guys did, even if you understand they potentially put themselves in harm's way. They they potentially put themselves in a situation where they were sacrificing their lives for what they felt was just. And I just have a ton of respect for that. It also, I think, sets a really bad precedent. So, you know, I, I'm kind of like, wait and see, wait and get more facts, uh, wait to see and hear the interviews when these people are interviewed, wait to see if there's any intervention from the State Department or the, um, the uh, armed forces on either saying yay or nay this was a good thing or a bad thing or we condemn this or yes they were they were supported by you know normal military operations uh i'm gonna wait and hold judgment um, but i'm just thinking there's probably two ways that we could look at this and i'm hoping it becomes more clear which way we should look at it as more facts come out which by the way is probably what most Americans should be doing because we make so many knee-jerk knee-jerk reactions and it's all about who can get the first YouTube video out there and who can get the first hot take and what news media organization can break the story the fastest. And I think that's a really dangerous precedent because sometimes, like things like this that happened a couple of weeks ago, a lot of times the wait, the right answer is like, get more facts, wait and see, form your opinion based off of like, first-hand accounts or interviews or people that were actually there discussing it or what goes down over the next couple months. So we'll see how this develops, but it'll it'll be interesting if Pineapple Express is a one-off crazy situation that we may never see again, or is this the new normal where Americans will not only arm themselves, but they will continue either post-military training or without military training to train themselves in the civilian world on combat tactics and just insert themselves into skirmishes around the world. Um, More to follow on this. Okay, talking about wait and see for more information. Man, we should just stop calling them conspiracy theories and start calling them spoiler alerts. Because a lot of stuff that three months ago, six months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago, People And I don't care what people they were on the left, on the right, at the ACLU, libertarians, um, social justice warriors, doesn't matter. A lot of things that people were saying might be concerning or might be counterfactual to the accepted narrative on COVID-19. They were banned from social media. Their posts were censored. They were called conspiracy theorists. They were, you know, kind of laughed off of certain or banned off of certain social media platforms. And the reality is, is you can go all the way back to our first podcast, and I think this was it, Chris. Maybe you can look this up. Uh, when Cole Strange was on, he talked about the mathematics of the swine flu. I think that was the H one N one, and he just he said, "Look, I don't know what's going on at COVID. I think we, I think we filmed that. Jesus, was it like almost a year ago now? Um, about eight months, something like that. It's it's been a while. Um, I think in January." Yeah, I think in January. So this is eight months ago. This is our friend Cole Strains, who's a very educated and smart guy, but not a doctor. And he just said like, hey, there's probably a wait and see metric here because, you know, with the amount of testing we're doing and the amount of fear that's being pumped into the system, um, at the end of the day, if we went back however many years that was, five, nine years when swine flu was a thing, you know, when you look at the CDC data, something like, 50 million or 70 million people across the country were at one time or another projected to have had swine flu. And if we were doing the same type of testing back then that we were now, the numbers would have been really scary because you would see a lot of people who died with swine flu, not necessarily from swine flu. And if you were testing every single person who was coming into the hospital for swine flu, you would be like, oh my God, cases are through the roof. And so, a lot of people were saying, "Hey, this is concerning how they're testing, right? This is concerning how they're paying hospitals. Depending on what study you read and, and how you interpret the government documents, it's it's concerning that the government is paying hospitals between twenty-five to thirty-five thousand, sometimes in excess of fifty thousand dollars, to treat a, a COVID patient, right? Like this kind of sets a moral hazard. Where do the hospitals have a motivation in?" Uh, sourcing more COVID-positive cases in order to make more money. And kudos to The Atlantic. Uh, I read The Atlantic frequently. Uh, shout out to my buddy Joe, who gifted me a subscription when he thought I was reading only right-wing publications. Uh, I like The Atlantic. I think a lot of their stuff is very left-leaning. I think their editorial section is almost complete propaganda, but they do a lot of really good research and kudos to them for this article that just came out. We'll link to it in the uh, comment section below or the the liner notes, (laughs) liner notes. I'm showing my age reading like album and cassette tape liner notes. Uh, You know, the Atlantic says the highlight is, or the the headline is, our most reliable pandemic number is losing meaning. A new study suggests that almost half of those hospitalized with COVID-19 have mild or asymptomatic cases, okay? So if you remember correctly, when COVID started, all they could talk about is the deaths, the deaths, the deaths, the deaths, the deaths, okay? And thankfully, although this is a real disease, it's very scary. People are dying of it. Once they stopped sending old people with COVID back to nursing homes, once they got a grip on the fact that like, okay, if you're under 50, you're pretty safe. If you're under 25, you're like ninety nine point nine 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 percent safe. Once they got a grasp on the fact of like, hey, we probably shouldn't intubate as soon as we are, um, this really dramatically, when we talk about severe COVID, like long haul COVID, which that hasn't even really been defined yet, or most importantly, death from COVID, um, it really affects elderly people. All right, we got to protect the elderly. We got to shelter the elderly. We can't send sick people back to uh, nursing homes. We got to lock down. We got to do COVID testing. We got to make sure that, you know, we, we, pref- we uh, have a preference of putting uh, social workers and healthcare workers that had already had COVID in the population to treat the older people because then they have a natural immunity. They'll be less likely to pass COVID on to these elderly people, right? So all this stuff was taken care of. Well, then they started shifting away from the uh, data points of the deaths and then they started shifting towards the data points of the infections, right? The number of cases. And the problem is the number of cases doesn't really tell the real story because if 200 million people get the flu but only a very small percentage die from that or have long-term severe symptoms that are lasting, then, hey, this is kind of just a normal disease that goes through the population. And thankfully, it doesn't have a huge death rate. Influenza does not have um, a huge death rate for people that that, um, are infected. And even people that get severely infected, there's treatment protocol and there's things that we can do and rest and fluids and all that kind of fun stuff and take two Tylenol and see me in the morning. Most people get over the flu. Well, the the problem is is that when you scare everybody and now every hospital goes into massive testing mode uh, you can further exacerbate the problem by telling everybody how many cases there are when what this article is is pointing out what the study is pointing out is that they did a study of a couple of VA hospitals and they looked over 50,000 individual cases of people that tested positive for COVID. And then they looked at, okay, why were they admitted for COVID? Um, did they have a uh, oxygen saturation rate above or below 94%? Because above 94%, you're fine. You basically have a cold or you have no symptoms at all. And below 94%, um, then you have severe COVID or you have actual respiratory problems and there's chance of all kinds of things, including like uh, congestive heart failure. And if your oxygen level gets too low. You're really fucked up. That's bad stuff. Um, And so what they did was this new study looked at these VA hospitals and from, uh, let me find the data here so I don't get called a liar. Um, They looked at 50,000 cases. I do know that for sure. Okay. So the study found um, that from January of 2020. Okay, wait, I want to make sure they get this right. Okay, so from March of 2020 to January of 2021, so basically pre-vaccine and pre-Delta virus, they found that the percentage of people that went into the hospital out of this 50,000 who went into the hospital, but maybe they went to the hospital because they broke their leg or because they had to have... You know, kidney dialysis or because they had to have eye surgery. Well, everybody, if you remember, and if you've been to the hospital in the last 18 months, everybody immediately gets tested for COVID. And so not surprisingly, they were having all these positive COVID tests. And there's even been some people that, that uh, created the PCR or PR is a PRC or PCR. I think it's PCR. Uh, huh? PCR? PCR, yeah. yeah, PCR. The PCR test um, actually gives a fair amount of false negatives, and somehow you can spin up the the minimum amount of disease that is in the blood cell and make it come back as a positive. I'm not saying that's any type of conspiracy. I'm just saying that the the, the test is not foolproof. So anyhow, so uh, pre Delta and pre vaccine, thirty six percent of patients that came in and tested positive for COVID either showed no symptoms, had mild symptoms, or were there for something completely outside of COVID-related issues and just happened to test positive, right? I know my sister uh, gave birth to my second nephew, which is awesome. And uh, she went into the hospital feeling fine, just like for a normal checkup, and she had something going on with her internal lady parts. And they're like, well, since you're here, we got to give you a a COVID test just in case you have to admit you. And it came back uh, positive, but she wasn't coughing. She wasn't having any complications with the pregnancy based on the covid thank God. Um, you know, she she didn't even know she had it, but now she goes into this pool of positive COVID tests, which then get promoted, uh, reported by the media. Now, even more good news. After we, ba- we basically start to get massive vaccinations at the end of last year, a huge cross-section of the population is now immunized from having natural occurring antibodies from getting the disease. Um, and the Delta variant is coming out at the same time. So now we have like a whole new level of infection, which should scare us. 48%, 48% from January of this year, 2021, till June of this year, 48% of people who tested positive for COVID, when these doctors actually went through and looked at each individual case and studied the digital medical records, they were not submitted to the hospital for COVID. They didn't have major symptoms for COVID. Their saturation rate wasn't below 94%. So, all I'm saying is that the media thrives on this fear porn, right? And and this is actually a good lesson for us in why central planning is never as good as the market. And this could get into a whole communism, central planning, socialism it doesn't work. But I'm just going to give you this thought experiment. So here's the thought experiment or here's the here's the facts and you can create your own thought experiment. I think with the CARES Act, the big, you know, trillion dollar bill that was passed to to help covid relief i think when they passed that somebody with good intentions looked at the hospitals and said hey if the hospitals are overwhelmed treating covid then we know that they can't do elective surgeries they can't do the high cost procedures they basically can't do all the things that makes a hospital profitable and stay in business so i'm sure some very well-intentioned politician i don't care if they're republican or a democrat doesn't matter put something into the CARES Act that said, well, for each COVID patient that you test, you're going to get $25,000 25000 or 35000 or if it's like a Medicare supplement, something, $50,000 to treat COVID patients. Because the thought is if they've got COVID and they're on a respirator and they're in the ICU for 21 days, then that's a real concern, right? That's huge amounts of money that the hospital and, the, and resources. And then if everybody's scared of coming to the hospital because it's overrun with COVID or you can't do elective surgeries that are very profitable for the hospitals, you know, the, the politicians were thinking like, we're smarter than everybody. We're not going to think of second, third and fourth order effects. So we're going to give these hospitals. 25 dollars or $35,000 per COVID case that they treat. Okay, well, now you give somebody a financial incentive, right? And now they're going to test everybody that walks in the hospital, whether they show symptoms or not, maybe because that's good public health medicine, or maybe because they want the test to come back positive so they can say they treated a COVID patient and get the extra $25,000, $35,000, $50,000, right? So now, because central planning tried to do something and didn't think of the second, third, fourth order effects... And, you know, if the market was responding to this, maybe they don't test everybody unless you have symptoms. But what ends up happening through testing everybody, for example, from January this year to June of this year, You get 48% of people testing positive who either are completely asymptomatic, don't even know they have COVID, or they have such minor symptoms. They're probably there for something else. You know, they fell and cut their head, and then they say, well, we got to give you a COVID test, and then it comes back positive, and then now you have a COVID treatment protocol, right? And what I'm I'm trying to say is, one, this is good news. This is really good news that... Almost 50% of the people that have been reported as, like, COVID cases, COVID hospitalizations, they're not actually there because they're dying of COVID or that they even have serious symptoms of COVID, which is good news, by the way. This is good news. This is stuff we want to talk about. Um, Number two is this is just a good reminder that, like, central planning, communism, socialism- A group of 535 people in Washington think they're smarter than the entire free market of 350 million people. There's always these second and third order effects because guess what? Now that we have all this reporting of all these COVID hospitalizations, it's even scaring more people into not going to the hospital. And it's even causing more hospitals to not be able to do the profitable elective surgeries and keep the doors open. And then this, you know, this vicious cycle just continues, you know. Sadly, I won't say who it is, but Chris and I have a very close friend who's a uh, fire captain, and I was talking to him uh, a couple months ago, and I was like, hey, man, you know, because I don't know. Like I I have my opinions on COVID. I have my opinions on the vaccine, but I like to hear from people that are like on the front lines. Uh, I have a friend who's a nurse at USC County Hospital. She's on the front line. She's been working in the COVID ward before they shut it down, like the supplementary overflow COVID ward, which they shut down. Good news because they're not overwhelmed. All the ICU beds are not filled. Um, And I asked my friend who's the fire captain. I'm like, Hey man, you were a paramedic. You know, you're kind of running calls. You fill out all the paperwork. Are you just like transporting you know, people that are on their deathbed with COVID back and forth to the hospital. Like, is, is everybody dying of COVID in your area? Because he actually works in a Asian community that skews much older than the general population in uh, Los Angeles. And he said, no, he's like, tragically, the people that we're having emergency paramedic situations for is people that are sick and they know it, either they're having chest pains or they're supposed to be on kidney dialysis, or they're supposed to be getting their chemotherapy, and they're so freaked out to go to the hospital because of all this news coming out of hospitals being overwhelmed and cases over the board and hospitalizations over the board, or, or, um, sorry, um, out of control. Um, and he said, what happens is these people that know they need to get their dialysis are so scared to go to the hospital because they think they're going to get COVID and die that they don't get their dialysis. And then it's not until they pass out and the family can take over because the person no longer effectively can make their own medical decisions that the family calls 911 and says, hey, we need to rush my family member to uh, Kaiser because they haven't had their dialysis in 17 days. And and so they're trying to get kind of like some public information out there like, hey, people. Um, COVID might kill you. Not getting your kidney dialysis will kill you. And so, you know, it's just shame on the media for the fear porn. Um, Shame on the government for thinking they can solve every problem. And then just shame on everybody for cherry picking the most scary fear porn stat when it comes to COVID. Um, Because all you're doing is you're, you're, you're muddying the waters and this this secondary headline that was in here I thought was really great. And again, kudos to The Atlantic for doing some real hardcore reporting here. It says, uh, you know, this links to another article which I read that says, America's entire understanding of the pandemic was shaped by messy data, right? Well, no shit, Atlantic. You were part of the problem because you kept pushing out the meta, the, the messy data to get as many clicks as possible because you wanted to scare the shit out of people. And so, look, get the vaccine don't get the vaccine. If you're old or you're in like a group of people where um, you know, you have many comorbidities, you have diabetes, you have respiratory issues, you have heart issues, you're morbidly obese, you're over whatever the age is these days where most people are passing away from COVID over 60, 65, 70, 75, um, t- do everything you have to do to protect yourself. Talk to your primary physician about the vaccine. That should be your decision between you and your doctor, right? Um, do everything you can to protect yourself And if you're generally healthy, look into articles like this. Look into the actual data. Look into how scary this disease actually is. Or maybe you'll find how scary this disease actually isn't. And I highly recommend that you do what you can to live your life, take care of your family, take care of your health, and just turn off Fox News and MSNBC. Please, listen to us. We'll try to bring you underlying facts. All right, our last story is a cornucopia, an orgy of stuff that's just floating around my mind that I think is related, but maybe it's not related, so this might just be the ramblings of a, of a madman. And I'll try not to ramble too much, but I'm really sad today. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday, September 15th, and um, as of yesterday, Gavin Newsom survived the recall efforts, survived actually by a landslide. Um, Larry Elder, who I voted for in the... Um, In the uh, recall, I voted yes on the recall and I voted for Larry Elder because I think he's an awesome dude that came from very little in uh, Crenshaw, Compton area, um, rose to prominence, went to an Ivy League school, opened his own small business, ran a thriving legal practice, uh, became a political commentator. He's just very intellectually congruent. I've never seen anybody debate as authentically and as intelligently as he is. Um, Gavin Newsom wouldn't debate him. Uh, Most mass media wouldn't interview him. I mean, he's a really sharp guy. Uh, And, you know, when you've got 25 years of public commentary out there, you know, he had a radio show at one point for three hours a day. uh, You're going to say some stuff that people can splice up and cut up and interpret and call you all kinds of names. And that's really all they did and And what frustrates me is that Gavin Newsom didn't run on the merits of what he's done for California. Gavin Newsom and all of the ads that were on YouTube, um, thanks to Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, who donated something like five million dollars to Gavin Newsom's campaign, which was pretty disgusting. I canceled Netflix. Um, it, it was It was all about a couple different fronts. It was saying, don't turn California into Texas because conveniently Texas just passed a pretty landmark abortion law that got um, not heard by the Supreme Court. Doesn't mean it was validated by the Supreme Court. Supreme Court decided not to hear it in like an emergency case. So uh, Gavin Newsom's talking points were don't become Texas. Um The only people that want this recall to happen are Trump voters. I don't know what that has to do with the price of tea in China because Trump didn't win California. There's not an overwhelming number of Trump voters in California. Trump's no longer president anymore. Jesus Christ, man. Everybody sounds like uh, some guy that can't get over his ex-girlfriend, right? Everybody wants to keep talking about Trump. Trump's out. Get over it. He lost. I, I I feel like that scene in Wayne's world where the girl keeps wanting to date Wayne and, and he's like, get over it. We broke up eight weeks ago. I'm not your boyfriend anymore. I kind of feel that's what we need to do with Trump. Just like move on. It's done. It's over. Right. And so instead of Newsom running on the quality of California, the things that he's been able to do, the way that he's handled COVID Um You know, he didn't do any of that. He said, don't turn California into Texas. Larry Elder is a racist, which he's not. And, um, you know, it's these evil Trump voters and these white supremacists that are trying to recall me, which they weren't. Um, There's just a lot of people that are unhappy with the state of California. And look, on an individual level, uh, based on what I observe, and based on the fact that 70% of Californians or 60% of Californians voted no on the recall, individuals in California are doing great. There's a lot of people in the entertainment world, in the finance world, myself, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to report that I made more money in 2021 than I've ever made in my entire life. It was the most successful year I've had professionally and personally, and that's pretty awesome, right? Um, and there's a lot of people in California that are experiencing that on the individual level. But if you go up to the 30,000-foot view and you look overall at the state of California, I don't know anybody not a single person who would say, you know what, Gavin's doing an awesome job, right? Whether it was the gaffes he had where the day after mandating that restaurants are closed and everybody has to wear masks and outdoor dining and whatnot, you know, he's caught dining without his mask on. Everybody's heard about that, but more so than that, you know, you can look at the place where he was mayor, San Francisco. Now you can look at the state where he's governor, California, and you can measure any metric you want. Homelessness, um, taxes, cost of housing, success of public services, um, just on and on and on and on. And I can't believe the homelessness problem didn't get them alone. But you can look at any of these like kind of um, uh, macro economic or macro societal issues. And I don't know anybody in California who says, oh yeah, we're crushing it, man. So it, it is it is funny to me or sad that a very progressive state like California that claims to care about... The bottom third of society basically just said, no, we're doing fine individually, so we're going to vote for the status quo, a.k.a. don't recall Newsom, a.k.a. I'm going to buy into this line of bullshit about Larry Elder being a racist and that somehow if we elect a Republican governor, then we're going to become Texas and we're going to pass all these uh, anti-abortion laws. Everybody knows in their heart of hearts, consciously and subconsciously, that that's not the case even if a Republican was to become governor of California, which I don't think ever will happen in my lifetime again, they would have to be a moderate. They would have to, you know, lead from the center. They would have to take into account liberal ideas and the overwhelming supermajority uh state assembly. I think we call it state assembly. Yeah. ooh, state assembly. Um, we have a camel situation where we have two houses in the, uh, in the, in the state, Um, political situation in California. I think one's called the Assembly. Are they both called the Assembly? You got to look this up, Chris. I feel ignorant. Like, I just failed civics 101 in California. I know I knew this in 11th grade, but anyway, um, you know, they would have, they would have to govern from the center. You know, that's basically what Arnold Schwarzenegger did. Technically he was a Republican, although you can't really be married to a, a Kennedy and be a Republican. Come on, man. Um, and he just, you know, very much managed from the center and he had to acquiesce to a lot of things from the union. So this, you know, this this cognitive dissonance of like, oh, I'm going to buy into the fact that if I vote for a recall, then there's going to be all these white supremacists coming out of the woodwork in California. It, you know it's just kind of laughable. Um, but those same people, you know, they have to drive down Sunset Boulevard when they, you know, go to work or go to a restaurant or whatnot. And they just see the shanty towns and the homelessness and the people shitting on the streets and the people shooting up heroin in the streets. And then they see the cost of housing because we can't build houses fast enough because of horrible regulation, zoning laws, environmental policy. You know, one of the things that Larry Elder did was he talked to uh, I think he said six or seven big developers. You know, these are like Kaufman and Bro type developers, CEOs, and they said, "Yeah, they're like, hey, if we can get a zoning ordinance, or if we can get a, um, if we can get a, uh, you know, reprieve on the twelve years of environmental studies we've been doing, we have five hundred house, five hundred thousand houses ready to break ground." 500,000 houses would be a good dent in the housing problem and the housing cost problem in California. But the politicians have just made it such a mess to be able to build housing that, you know, a starter home in Southern California, if the price isn't somewhere north of $800,000, the developer can't make money. You know, if you're in Los Angeles, San Diego, Orange County, anywhere around San Francisco or the Bay Area, you can't bring a new unit of housing online for less than $800,000 or it's not profitable for the builder to build it. And so what's interesting to me is one, that Newsom was able to run on kind of this like federal stage when what people should have been worried about is the state that we live in. You know, he was able to talk about Trump and Texas and, and all the things that will happen on a federal level if somehow an evil Republican becomes governor of California. And it was just bullshit because the state's not doing well. You know, there's going um, to be a budget surplus this year. Kudos to the federal government for giving the state of California a ton of money. Um, that probably has something to do with Nancy Pelosi being the aunt of uh, Gavin Newsom, but I digress. Um, And then, you know, other than a budget surplus, there's not a whole lot going well on the macro level of California. Now, again, lots of people killing it on the micro level. Lots of people making a lot of money on crypto and real estate and finance and entertainment. But man, you look around at your fellow man, you look at how people that have entry level jobs are doing because they basically got shut out of the workforce involuntarily for half the year last year. You talk to people that can't pay their rent. You look at the homelessness problem. I mean, it's just it's just devastating and it and it makes me sad. And and what I'll end on at this point, cause I'm not going to have an opinion really on the Texas abortion law. I don't know a lot about it. I think the way they set it up probably sets a really bad precedent on this idea that it's like this vigilante turning your neighbor type situation. Um, And in my life, uh, I'm now 42, 43. How am I? 40. Yeah. 42. Uh, In my life at 42, I've gone back and forth between being more pro-choice and more pro-life. And that's probably a whole different podcast. Um, But I can see both sides of the argument. I really can. And I can kind of steel man either side of the argument. If I'm, Arguing with a pro-lifer, I can piss them off some really thoughtful pro-choice arguments. And if I'm arguing with a pro choicer I can piss them off with some really thoughtful pro-life arguments. But what I will say is this, is that in California, the governor, the state legislator, you know, society has really pushed an agenda of every left-wing progressive policy. And that's okay, because if I choose to live in the state of California and we vote in people that have those opinions and want to push those policies... I'm basically beholden by their decisions whether I agree with those decisions, you know, ethically, morally, politically or not. Like, so it's this weird thing where when you live in a left-leaning state and they're pushing a left-leaning agenda, somehow that's just the normal course of progress in the eyes of the media, and the eyes of a lot of voters. But if you live in a right-leaning state, which let's not kid ourselves, everybody knows Texas is a right-leaning state. You know, if you plucked uh, Austin out of the middle of the state, it would be almost exclusively red. Um, so you would kind of expect a right-leaning state to push a right-leaning agenda. Now, again, I'm not saying whether this law is legal or not. I'm not saying whether it's just or not. I'm not saying whether the Supreme Court will shut it down or not. I'm not saying, you know, right of the baby over women's rights to choose. I'm just saying if we're going to have state governments, because remember, this is not a democracy that we live in. This is a republic where each state effectively gets to do what they want. And it's like, well, that's the beauty and the horror of living in America. If you don't like the tax laws in California, you can move to Nevada. If you don't like the abortion laws in Texas, you can move to Michigan. If you don't like the sunshine and the zero tax laws in Florida and you want to move to just like a cesspool of New York and pay 13% state taxes, then great. Move to Manhattan. Um, and, and, and that's the thing. So I just I, I want people that are really fired up on one side or the other of this debate to just step back and be like, OK, well, wait a minute if I'm trying to steel man the other side's argument, right, which basically means I'm trying to see the argument from their point. If I'm a Democrat, I hate using Democrat and Republican because they're both just basically big marketing companies. If I'm a Democrat in California, do I think that maybe there's a whole lot of policies we've enacted on the social side, the economic side, the political side in California that Republicans would be as adamantly opposed to As I'm as adamantly opposed to this new abortion law coming out of Texas. And I think if you're thinking, you know, genuinely and you're trying to give the devil their due, yeah, you could see that side of the argument. And so I just want you to know that, like, hey, that's that's the that's the country we signed up for. Right. It's Republicanism, smart, all smart. Small R, not large R Republican, Republicanism or Republica. We li- we live in a Republica or a Republic. Sorry, Republica is not a word. Uh, what is a word? But I use it incorrectly. We live in a Republic where the states can do what they want. And so if you live in a right-leaning state, sometimes if you're a left-leaning individual, you're going to be really pissed off. And sometimes if you're like me and you're right-leaning and you live in a left-leaning state, a lot of times you're going to be pissed off. And that's just kind of the nature of it. And remember, it wasn't until the recent past that, you know, go westward, young man, or move south, young woman. It's like, people would just move to find a culture and a state at a set of laws in America that better aligned with who they were instead of screaming from the rafters and calling everybody a racist or a sexist or a homophobe or whatever the new term of the day is to uh, try to diminish the opinion of your political foe. So those are my thoughts for today. Thanks for sticking around. If you stick around this long, you know what this is. It's On The Edge podcast with Scott Grove, Scott's thoughts. Um, Do me a favor, subscribe click the likey button, leave a comment wherever you found this. Uh, We'd really appreciate it. It obviously helps the algorithm and has a lot of people um, uh, see the event. And also, by the way, this podcast is sponsored by me, (laughs) Uh, Scott Groves. That's the sponsor of this episode because I use the money that I make in the mortgage world, in the coaching world to fund this new podcast studio, to pay for Chris, to pay for all this technology, to pay for the time and the editing to get this out to the masses. So, if you need a loan anywhere in Texas or anywhere in Texas, <laughs> I'm looking at Texas. If you need a loan anywhere in America, uh, our team is licensed in California, Arizona, Nevada, Texas, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina. And then I have a pool of people, uh, that I know really well that are licensed in every state. So if you trust the things that I'm telling you on this podcast, then you can probably trust me to trust me to give you a uh, correct mortgage advice. So, uh, shoot us an email, Scott at Scott Groves team. If you need anything on the mortgage or finance side, we'll put you in touch with the right people or we'll do the loan ourselves, or we'll tell you we can't do it and who, you should go to. But um, yeah, it's basically the money that I make in my nine to five job that helps fund this passion project. So if you've got a mortgage or you know anybody who's looking to buy or refinance a home, we'd love to help them because that will help keep this podcast going. All right. Love you so much. Talk soon. Bye.